Hello, and welcome to Pieces of History. I am Colin McGrath. Each week, I'll be delving into some renowned and lesser known events throughout history. This week, I'll be looking at the formation, development, and downfall of King Leopold's Congo. If you are unfamiliar with the Democratic Republic of the Congo, it is the largest country in sub Saharan Africa, sandwiched between South Sudan, Zambia, Angola, and the Republic of the Congo, to name just a few. The country, shortened to the DRC, has five recognised languages, including French, Lingala, Kolongo, Swahili and Tashiluba. The DRC has a population of just over 81 million, with a seat of government in Kinshasa. The country is widely considered one of the world's richest countries in natural resources, with deposits of cobalt ore, gold, zinc, copper and diamonds. It is the second largest diamond producing nation in the world. Unfortunately, the country is still recovering from a conflict known as Africa's World War, which led to the loss of some 5 million lives between 1994 and 2003, with many eastern areas still plagued by violence as various rebel groups continue to operate in the region. The root behind the violence is a grab for the vast natural resources throughout the country. This has attracted immoral corporations, vicious warlords and corrupt governments, and divided the population between the competing ethnic groups. The UN has tried to intervene by launching peacekeeping missions and brought 20,000 personnel to quell the violence. Sadly, the violence has continued up until the present day. To understand the origins of King Leopold's Congo, we need to look at the Belgian Empire and their quest to colonise Central Africa in the 19th century. Towards the latter half of the 19th century, the map of the world had very few blank spaces left. The British, Dutch, Spanish and French had colonised the New World, Asia and Australia, the Belgians had yet to make their mark on the world. During the 1860s, a phenomenon began to spread in Western Europe, the scramble for Africa. Africa at this time was beginning to be colonised by the major powers, yet it hadn't been completely plundered. The central interior was still an unknown area which was ripe for the picking. The African explorer was a modern day celebrity in the 19th century. Richard Burton was famous for his journey to Mecca in disguise, at a time when Europeans were forbidden to access on pain of death. John Speck, an officer in the British Indian Army, searched for the source of the Nile and was the first European to reach Lake Victoria, Africa's largest lake by area. And Paul Duchelieu, the first modern European outsider to confirm the existence of gorillas and later the pygmy people of Central Africa. Why were these men so interested in charting and mapping Africa when it had been left alone for centuries by Europeans? Money. Britain and other Western European countries needed the raw materials that would power the industrial revolutions of the late 19th century. Excitement began to increase as diamonds were discovered in South Africa in 1867 and gold in the 1880s. It was a promise of untold riches that sparked the Belgians' imagination, and in particular King Leopold II. King Leopold II came to power in 1865 after succeeding his father King Leopold I, the first King of Belgium. From the early days of his reign, Leopold wanted to expand the reach and power of his fledgling country and so he embarked on an extensive search for new lands and territories to buy. He cast his net all over the world and invested in the Suez Canal, inquired about the possibility of buying Fiji and looked into railways in Brazil and leasing territory on Formosa in modern day Taiwan. During this period, Leopold is quoted to have said, quote, Belgium doesn't exploit the world, it's a taste we have got to make her learn, End quote. His quest was simply not for money, but power. As Leopold grew into his role as king, the 1860s made way for the 1870s, 
and Africa came on the horizon as a potential new area to exploit. The British had already got their hands in South Africa, with Portugal claiming lands in Mozambique. Spain and France owe some islands off the western coast of the continent. What enticed Leopold is that 80% of all lands were still in the hands of indigenous rulers. This was an opening that he couldn't let slip. As the rest of the world was being carved up, Leopold decided that he needed to make his move. In 1876, he organised the Brussels Geographical Conference, essentially a conference to discuss the carving up of the continent with other European powers. From the Geographical Conference, an organisation was created, the International African Association, which is where Leopold cemented his plans in the region. The association allowed Leopold to succeed in his goal of convincing the Belgian people and the other major powers of Europe that his interest in Africa was purely noble and humanitarian orientated. He had managed through several conferences and negotiations to lay claim to the uncharted territory. While Leopold was in the formative stages of his new empire, an English explorer by the name of Henry Morton Stanley was in the midst of exploring Africa in 1874. He was making his way to the largest blank space on the map of Africa, the equatorial centre of the continent. Stanley, on the brink of financial support from the New York Herald and the Daily Telegraph, was exploring the interior in order to find a connection to the Nile. It was this exploration that Leopold took a keen interest in and followed the details of the trip through the Times of London. Stanley, a journalist by trade, wrote about his adventures in the Daily Telegraph, as well as reports on his discoveries and dinners that he attended in Cape Town and Cairo. The trip began in Zanzibar, on the eastern coast of Tanzania, before voyaging towards Lake Victoria. Stanley and his crew circumnavigated the lake and travelled to Lake Tanaka, which straddles the border of the DRC, Burundi and Tanzania. He was probably impressed by the size and scale of the lake, as it is the second oldest freshwater lake in the world, the second largest by volume and the second deepest, not that they knew this at the time. Lake Takanakia was a first glimpse of what riches could be found in the uncharted area. After discovering that there wasn't a path to the Nile, Stanley moved west to the Lubala River, which proved to be the source of the Congo River. They were now on the path which would take them directly to the centre of the region. Stanley took copious notes about the voyage, which would in turn be made into two volumes, where he detailed everything from maps, street plans of villages, lineages of African kings, prices of chickens, to the cost of 12 yards of cloth. As Adam Hothschild writes in his fantastic book, King Leopold's Ghost, quote, He is forever measuring and tabulating things. Temperature, miles travelled, lake depths, latitude, longitude and altitude, which he calculated by measuring the temperature at which water boiled. Specially trusted porters carried fragile loads of thermometers, barometers, watches, compasses and pedometers. It is almost as if he was a surveyor, mapping the continent he crossed for its prospective owners. End quote. In a way he did have a prospective owner, and he was keeping up to date on the progress of the trip thousands of miles away in Belgium. After the completion of his exploration of the interior of Central Africa, Stanley then went looking for business. He gathered up all his maps and reports, and set his sights on countries that might like to further expand their empires in the Congo. Leopold, who had instructed advisors to contact Stanley on his way home to London, asked if he would call by Brussels in order to hold discussions with the king about his discoveries. Finally, in 1878, Leopold met with Stanley, almost three years after the start of the Congo exploration. The two got on well with Leopold conversing in English, putting Stanley at ease. Stanley was flattered by the attention as he was turned down by the British. Finally, he was getting the recognition that he deserved. 
Leopold was able to get Stanley into an arrangement where he would work on behalf of the Belgian king to further explore the Congo for 25,000 francs a year for time spent in England and 50,000 francs a year for the time spent in the Congo. Leopold would also fund the expedition. After securing the backing of the Belgians, Stanley then went back to work opening up the area for the king. Using a new form of travel, the steamboat, Stanley made his way through the rivers and tributaries of the interior to form a base for his new operation. He opened up new roads and created links with local rulers to expand the empire. A survey was completed in 1887 for the possibility of the railway to be built. It took so much effort to put in the infrastructure in place, the railway was only able to be started three years later. A state bureaucracy was put in place to manage the newly acquired area as people began to flood the Congo from Europe. Traders, soldiers, missionaries and administrators descended on the new state looking to further their own careers. While all this was taking place in the name of the king, the king himself was struggling to keep up with the financial pressure to pay for it all. In order to open up this fast and distant empire, he needed to bring in specialists with a background in the military, town planning, exploration, building and civic administration. How did he pay for all of this? Borrowing. He approached the leading bankers of the day in order to pay for everything. They did for a while, but then the money dried up and they walked away. Leopold decided that he needed to name his new state. By 1884, he had signed treaties with 450 independent African entities and asserted the right to govern all territory concerned as an independent state. At the Berlin West Africa Conference of 1884-85, its name became the Congo Free State and European powers recognised Leopold as its sovereign. Now with the blessing of the European elite, Leopold, on the facade of ending slavery and bringing religion and the benefits of modern life to the Congolese, created a powerful instrument of colonial subjugation. The Congo was now at the mercy of its colonisers. When the Congo Free State came into being, it was 76 times the size of Belgium. The region was now directly under the rule of the Belgian king and he wasted no time in extracting all that he could. A royal decree was announced on the first day of the existence of the Congo when a law was passed that all vacant land in the area was now property of the king. He claimed the right to everything in his new lands, people, elephants, villages, fields and rivers. The land was so vast that Leopold needed investors to lease parts of the state in order to generate funds for expansion. The ivory trade was an important income generator for the regime and the Belgians used locals to help gather tusks for export. Leopold is quoted to have said, quote, in dealing with a race composed of cannibals for thousands of years, it is necessary to use methods which will best shake their idleness and make them realise the sanctity of work. End quote. The natives in the Congo were unfortunately treated the same as the Native Americans in the United States when the pilgrims first arrived. People who needed rescued from their primitive ways. The work that Leopold was alluding to was portering. Porters were used to traverse the uneven and dirty tracks to carry everything from machine guns, camping equipment to food and wine. Tens of thousands of porters, most of them conscripted, with some being paid, including children as low as the age of nine. Some of these children would carry items weighing 22 pounds that could be as heavy as a car tire per child. The treatment that these porters received was shocking. They would be chained by the neck and kept under watch by an overseer who whipped those that got out of line. Without those conscripted people, the early days of the expansion on the region could not have been feasible. The military played an important role in the development of Leopold's new territory. Aside from his own men, the Free State employed African mercenaries ever since their first forays in the area with Henry Morton Stanley in the early 1880s. 
The new army was called the Force Public and grew to more than 19,000 officers by the end of the century. The army was mainly used to quell rebellions by local tribes and to control the vast areas which the Empire now held. Uprisings and ambushes were common with one particular being led by a local chief by the name of Nanzu. In December 1893, the tribe burned a station called Baka Baka, meaning capture capture to the ground. They burned and plundered two other nearby state posts, but they left missionaries alone. Carl Todor Andersen, a Swedish missionary on a caravan route, was giving supplies and even goods returned from one of the stations which was previously overrun. The force public were kept on constant alert as they had to suppress revolts in the northeast of the country, which went on for three years, skirmishes spread out over 600 miles of forest and savannah and along the lakes of the country's eastern border. Tribes worked together in order to rid their lands of the invading force. The Belgian army was stressed to its limit as the fighting continued into 1900, a resource drain which the new state could have done without as it took 50% of the budget of the Congo Free State to manage. Not to mention the damage that this fighting caused to the Congo Free State's reputation on the international stage, people were taking notice of the human suffrage in Leopold's new project. Bama, the capital of the new state, was complete in the early 1890s. Docks, warehouses, railway lines, government offices and a Catholic church were all visible within the settlement. A hospital was also built along with a post office and military base. Leopold had created more than a foothold in his new dominion. Unlike other colonies, the Congo Free State was governed not from Buma, but from Brussels, several thousand miles away. The men who ran the place lived a privileged life. They had all the mod cons, including a bottle of red wine a day, English marmalade, Danish butter, canned meats, soups and condiments. Many of the men didn't bring their wives over in the first wave of settlement, but as the first years ticked by, many made the trek from Europe. As Leopold had a firm foothold in the area, he looked to expand his new empire. He dispatched expeditions northeast towards the Nile Valley in order to claim copper mines which would hopefully be linked to his railway network. The French, who had interests of their own in this area, blocked Leopold from making moves into Egypt. He asked Gladstone, then Prime Minister of England at the time, about the possibility of leasing Uganda. Leopold suggested that the force public become involved in settling disturbances in Crete. He proposed leasing some of Spain's territories in the Canary Islands and their lands in the Carolines in the South Pacific. He invested in a railway in China, which turned a good profit, and during this period he suggested that Chinese labourers could be exchanged for Congolese soldiers for the Chinese to use. He also invested in land in China for his drive into Asia. In 1891, the Belgians extended their grip in the country by overcoming Arab slave traders in the Lubala River region and then moved to take control of vital copper depots in Katanga, a province within the Congo. They constructed transportation links to the interior of the country, with a railway being built to bypass the Congo River rapids. As Stanley was quoted to have said, quote, Without the railroad, the Congo was not worth a penny. End quote. The Belgians quickly gained the reputation for being ruthless, as locals were constructed to work on the new transport links, gather wild rubber, palm oil and ivory, while under the fear of lashings and beatings. Villagers were faced with regular abductions as family members were taken in order to force local men to meet their work quotas. This treatment only stoked the Congolese to rebel furthermore, but these actions were quickly put down by the force public. The army burned villages and slaughtered untold numbers of individuals. Troops were instructed to cut off the hands of the Congolese, including children. This mutilation 
not only served as a punishment, but also as a method to further terrorise the Congolese into submission. The collecting of severed hands by soldiers proved to their commanding officers that they were actively crushing rebellious activity. Brutality was widespread in mines and on plantations. The population of the entire state is said to have declined from some 20 million to 8 million in the period. The Congo Free State evolved from a vanity possession for Leopold into a slave plantation. This slave plantation filled the coffers of Leopold's accounts. It has been recorded that the revenue from rubber and bonds issued during this period were worth more than 100 million francs, or roughly half a billion today. What did Leopold use all this found wealth to buy? Monuments, new wings to his palaces, museums and pavilions all over Belgium. None of the profits found their way to the development of the Congo. One of the most opulent spending sprees that he went on was for a promenade, parks and racetrack in Ostend on the western coast of Belgium. He spent money on 85,000 geraniums on the opening of the venue. The treatment of the Congolese didn't go unnoticed as the truth about Leopold's regime spread to Britain and Europe. Descriptions of the atrocities in the Congo were written about by Mark Twain, English journalist E.D. Morel and various missionaries. Joseph Conrad's novel Heart of Darkness is the most famous account of Leopold's Congo. The book takes the reader on a journey into the heart of Africa with the narrator Charles Marlowe. Marlowe's life-changing journey begins on the Thames where he travels to the dark continent to search for a fellow European who may or may not have gone mad and who is worshipped as a god by the natives of the primitive interior. When Marlowe finds him on his deathbed, he utters the famous words, the horror, the horror. This is often said to refer to the atrocities Conrad himself witnessed in the Congo as it suffered under the colonial administration of the Belgians. Conrad also took some details for the book from William Henry Shepherd, a Presbyterian missionary, who described more than a dozen villages burning, stories of forced labour, the collection of slaves, the murder of the local population, and huts with collections of hands, a sign of punishment and the crushing of local rebels. Some of the main accusations that were levied against the Congo Free State came to the fore during 1890. The humanitarian and human rights abuses were outlined by Colonel George Washington Williams, a member of the 41st US Coloured Troops of the Union Army who fought in battles including Richmond and Petersburg in the American Civil War. Williams wrote scathing reports on what he witnessed while being stationed at the Stanley Falls Station, named after Henry Morton Stanley. He ended up in the Congo like many other Civil War veterans, looking for work. Before he arrived in Africa, Williams was already writing and speaking out about post-Civil War backlash of lynchings and Ku Klux Klan violence. What he observed in the Congo shocked and appalled him. Some of the accusations which he levied at the colonists include accusing Stanley and his accomplices of using tricks, such as allowing locals to think that they had supernatural powers in order for them to sign over land. Stanley's character was brought into question as Williams stated that he broke promises his constant use of profanity, his bad temper and his severe measures when taking lands from individuals. The creation of military bases along the river had caused a wave of death and ruin as African soldiers had to feed themselves. Prisoners were placed into chain gangs while having chains placed around their necks. The noble and humanitarian orientated mission to help the Congo was a falsehood. Leopold and his state were simply extracting all that they could from the region and any provisions that a normal government provides i.e. hospitals, schools etc. was a fraud. Williams's open letter which led out the birth facts of Leopold's Congo was spread throughout Europe and the United States. Leopold did not take the criticism lightly as he told the British minister in Brussels not to believe any of it. 
he put out several stories himself to try and discredit Williams in the Belgian press. Not all of them believed the propaganda, as one newspaper stated, quote, We are not inclined to accept as gospel trust everything the Congolese administration wishes to offer in its own defence. By 1891, the controversy reached the Belgian government with some ministers defending and some attacking the king. The English journalist E.D. Morel also echoed a lot of the accusations made by Colonel Williams. He outlined his concerns to his boss, Sir Alfred Jones, head of the Elder Dempster shipping line, who has had a lucrative contract to work in the Congo. Morel, who worked in the Congo for the company, tried to convince Jones to speak to the king about the atrocities that were happening in the colony. Since his advice was falling on deaf ears, no doubt Jones didn't want to lose the contract. He quit his job and decided to write about the Congo and his experiences full-time. He took a job in a newspaper, specifically about Africa, but when the management limited him to what he could say, he left to set up his own publication, the West African Mail. He ploughed ahead with books, articles, speeches and pamphlets about the Congo. The Congo Free State had their own propaganda to spin on the success of the region. They exhibited in world fairs and museums about the profits and prosperity that they were bringing to the African interior. Leopold's spokesman denied that there was any abductions of family members to force men to gather rubber. Morel was detailed in his examination of the Belgian Empire in the Congo. He listed names, villages, arrest dates, observations and why people were being detained by the authorities. He had informants providing him with information directly from the force public and someone else working in the Belgian head office of a company working in the Congo. He was able to unpick the lies spun by Leopold and his government, including the bribes and honours that were bespoke to individuals in order for them to speak highly of the Congo Free State. By 1903, public opinion had changed regarding King Leopold and his African Empire. The Belgian Parliament sent a telegram to the consul in the Congo to quote, go to the interior as soon as possible and to send reports soon, end quote. The consul, an Irishman by the name of Roger Casement, had 20 years experience of working in Africa and had already come to know the horrors that the authorities had perpetrated on the locals. In one instance, he noted when a force public officer explained to him how he paid his black officers five brass rods or two and a half D per human head during military operations. Casement reported back more atrocities to the Belgian government and it was in these reports, combined with others from Morel and Williams, which put the wheels in motion to oust Leopold and his Congo Free State. An organisation was set up, the Congo Reform Association, in order to aid the exploited and impoverished workforce of the Congo by drawing attention to their plight. The association, started by Morel and Casement in 1904, put pressure on the Belgian government to withdraw power from King Leopold over the region. Newspapers and magazines ran pictures of burned villages and disfigured bodies, missionaries spoke up on what they had witnessed during their visits to the country, members of the forced public spoke out on the atrocities that they observed and taken part in, traders, working with the state to export goods and services, also spoke out on the slavery that they had saw and members of the governing body also reported on the abuses that they had seen. The pressure mounted on the Congo Free State Government and the Belgian administration themselves by the international community. The British and American governments supported the findings by the journalists investigating the area. The Belgians needed to answer some serious questions about the conduct of the sovereign. The tide finally broke on the Congo Free State when the Belgian government decided that Leopold needed to separate himself from his own personal fiefdom. Morel, leading the charge to change the ownership of the land to the Belgian government, believed that the rights of the Congolese might be better protected in a Belgian colony open to scrutiny under the rule of law rather than a king. 
Leopold, who had intended to bequeath the Congo to the Belgians on his death, knew that the end was drawing near and so he moved to sell the land to the government rather than give it away. In 1906 negotiations began but quickly broke down. The reason that an agreement couldn't be reached is that the government didn't know the true value of the Congo Free State as the finances were kept secret by Leopold. Talks continued through 1907 and then into 1908 when Leopold gave the government's price for his African empire. The government agreed to assume 110 million francs worth of debt, 45.5 million francs towards building projects and Leopold would receive another 50 million francs in installments. This money would be taken from the Congo itself and not from the Belgian taxpayer. The transfer of power was completed in November 1908 at a ceremony at the Congo Free State's capital in Boma. The state was abolished and replaced by the Belgian Congo. The abuses by King Leopold, the force public and the traitors who extracted all they could from the country for 23 years reverberated long after the administration left the region. The horrors of land confiscation from local tribes, quelled rebellions, forced slavery and human rights abuses cast a long shadow over the state. The true scale of the human suffering in the Congo can never be accounted for. It is estimated that millions died through land clearing and settlement, those punished and murdered by the forced public in the rubber plantations, tribes that were put down fighting the Belgian rule, disease and extermination of native peoples who stood against an occupation of their lands. The disruption not only complicated the establishment of a viable system of administration for the Belgian Congo, it also left a legacy of anti-Western sentiment. As the country transferred to the Belgian government in 1908, the king, who had seen his empire slip through his fingers, fell ill with cancer. He married his long-term partner Caroline and received the last rites. The king's physician ordered an operation, but it was unsuccessful. It was soon after this that he died. As Adam Hofschild writes, quote, At his death, Leopold was little mourned by his people. As for the world outside Belgium, thanks to Morel and his allies, it is now thought of Leopold not in terms of the monuments and buildings he was so proud of, but of the severed hands. End quote. Thanks for joining me on this journey through the history of King Leopold's Congo. I hope you enjoyed it. Some of the sources that I used for this episode include King Leopold's Ghost, a story of greed, terror and heroism, in Colonial Africa by Adam Hofschild, Belgium and the Congo, 1885-1980 by Guy Falmschild and History Today. Pieces of History is written and produced by me, Colm McGrath, with additional material by Anya McGrath. If you would like to hear more episodes, you can subscribe on iTunes and Spotify, and you can also get involved in the show by leaving comments and show suggestions on Twitter and Instagram at Pieces of History. Thanks for listening.